All right, I hope you all feel lifted up. It's the reading of the scripture. Um, this is Mark 11 to 27 to chapter 12, uh, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do to them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of God. He may be seated. Great to be here with you all. If you are new, if this is your first time at Door of Hope, welcome. I have met some of you who, for whom this is your first time. Or if you've been here for a while, also welcome. Welcome to those of you who are watching, um, watching us online. We all know it's not the same thing as being here. So I'll say, we're not a content delivery service, whether it's theological or bi- biblical. Um, we're community. We're community that is centered around Jesus. So if you are at all able and you're watching online to join us, please come and join us. Um, once again, it's not just about the content. Uh, we, are, we are a community, and we lift each other up and encourage each other around Jesus. And that doesn't happen through this like one-way portal where things are going out um, and nothing's coming back. We want to have that kind of reciprocity. So uh, anyway, that's just an aside. Welcome uh, either way. Uh, like I said, my name is Josh. If you uh, don't recognize me or I haven't met you, that's my name. My name is Josh. <laughs> I'm one of the pastors here. And I would like to, uh, I, guess, I guess, kick off the sermon today. You know, we, we spent 
probably about two, about two months doing, doing other things besides the Gospel of Mark, right? We did the Holy Spirit series, and then we did a vision series after that. So it's been a little bit until last week when, when Cameron started us back off in Mark, and that might feel like a little bit of whiplash. Like, oh yeah, Mark, we were doing that, right? So, so I just want to spend a little bit of time kind of catching us up to where, like, where has Mark taken us so that when we get to where we are right now, hopefully it will make more sense. It's always a good idea whenever you're reading anything in Scripture, or any literature really, to read what happened before to help make sense of what's happening right, right there, okay? So, so what's Mark doing? Mark started out his gospel just by presenting Jesus as a man going throughout Galilee, which was like a rural area in Palestine. He went around and he taught, uh, he taught people about the kingdom of God. He performed miracles. He was healing the sick. He was helping people. And he got into some low-level confrontations with some people there, but not like what we're going to see today and what, and what was happening last week. There were these low-level confrontations. People didn't really understand him. But nevertheless, he was going about doing good. That's actually what it says in the book of Acts. Going about doing good. And then Mark has this significant shift in chapter 8 because he's, he's doing all this. He's painted everything. Jesus, the, the, the guy who does good... He wants us to ask this question. Well, who is this guy? What makes him so unique? What makes him different from other people who go about and do good and preach? Jesus wasn't the only one who went around preaching, you know. He did perform miracles. That's one of the things he did. But Mark really wants to get us to say, who is Jesus? Who is this guy who does all these things? And then so in chapter 8, he has Jesus outed by Peter. Jesus says to his disciples, those people who are closest to him, he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, something like that. And then Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter's the one who says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus essentially tells him, you're right, Peter, but let's keep a lid on it. Let's keep a lid on it. And then he does something interesting. He says, the reason why is because he is going to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, crucified, put to death, and then raised from the dead. He actually goes on to say that several times, that this is what's going to happen. So after Peter outs him, he says, put a lid on it. And then after that, in chapter 9, Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And there we have the, the account of what has been called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is his clothes glow like this. Anybody ever seen that happen to somebody else? Me neither. Like, that would be insane, wouldn't it? Somebody's just talking, blah, blah, blah. I'm right here. My clothes just started glowing. You'd be right to freak out. And that's essentially what the disciples do. They freak out. Until a voice comes, a booming voice, not like a little impression inside the heart, but a booming voice comes out and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So Jesus has now been outed as the Son of God, both by Peter and by God himself, okay? You might have heard in community college from your comparative religions course professor or something that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Maybe you picked that up somewhere. And of course he was that. But that's not what the Bible says all he is. That's not what the primary sources about Jesus' life say that he was. They say that he was the Son of God. 
And that's what we believe here at this church. That's what I believe, is that Jesus was the Son of God. That's why these biographies have been preserved throughout the years, is because people believe that. Well, I thought that, you know, that some council 300 years later just decided that he was the Son of God, right? That's what Dan Brown said in the Da Vinci Code, right? <laughs> Actually, those guys who were deciding something, they were just looking back here. They were like, well, what, is it, what, what did the people around Jesus say about him? What did Jesus say about himself? Well... We're with them. That's all they did. They didn't decide anything. They just said, we affirm what's always been affirmed, and that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I don't mean, I don't say that to offend anyone here who doesn't believe that, or anybody watching who doesn't believe that. I'm just saying, this is, this is what Christians have always believed. So, uh, we're, not going to, we're not going to back away from that because it's uneasy in our, in our modern society. It's true. We actually believe this is true, and we believe that this is God's truth to everyone, to everyone, and that you can experience a new kind of life, a life that will last forever by joining Jesus because he actually is the Son of God and has made his life available to you. And so that your life, as his life is planted inside of you, you live forever because your life is bound inextricably to his. That's essentially the gospel. So, Jesus is far more than a great moral teacher. He came not just to teach and not just to do good. Of course he came to do good. Of course he came to alleviate suffering and do the wonderful things that he did. But the only people that are truly impacted by that were the people of that generation that he lived in. So Jesus was here to do a lot more. That's why he says three times, before we even get to where we are today, three times he has said, he's come to die and rise from the dead. And the reason for that is because we have a problem called sin. Like, we, we had to see. Jesus had to go through this arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. He had to go through that to prove to us that we actually really need him. That we're not just like, oh, you know what, we just need a little bit of a, a handout. We're, we're actually mostly good, but it's our environment that corrupts us. He, went, he did that to show that when God comes, the perfect human being comes along, you and I would reject him. And that's exactly what God's own people who had been listening to him, they had his scriptures, they'd heard his voice, they'd had the prophets. Jesus comes along and they reject him. They reject God. And this is, of course, you know, John talks about this in chapter 3 of John's gospel where he says, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. And so when Jesus comes, he comes and he exposes the evil that all of us participate in, stuff that's deep down inside of us. And we need to be rescued from that. We need to be cleansed from it. And that's why Jesus had to die, as John again says, the Lamb of God who takes away, who takes away the sin of the world. See, it wouldn't be good enough if Jesus had like, been, been born and lived his life, and then he died of old age, or he got hit by a speeding chariot. You know? And then God, God's just like, well, I guess that counts. You know? <laughs> like, that's not how it worked. It had been prophesied thousands of years beforehand that he would come and he would die in this way on behalf of those who need him, which is all of us. It's the basic gospel. So that's where Jesus is headed. He's, he's going towards the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. So we had last week, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the donkey. At this point, he's been talking enough and has enough influence that people are actually believing that he's the Messiah. He's the Savior of Israel. And what they mean, what they think of when they think of that is he's going to take away their oppressors. He's going to remove the current political regime that keeps the thumb on them so that other people can be lifted up. 
He's primarily a circumstantial Savior. He's going to change their circumstances. He's going to rule from Jerusalem, and he's going to squash the people that have been squashing them. They didn't want a Messiah who was going to actually try and do something inside of them, change their hearts, not their circumstances. And by the way, lest we cluck our tongues too loudly, we want that too, right? Most of our prayers actually have to do with a change in circumstances. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but God is here to do so much more than merely change circumstances. He wants to change us, right? So, anyways, we're, we're, now we're getting into last week, right? Jesus comes on the donkey. Everyone's going, yay! You know, they think he's here, he's here to save them from Rome. He goes into the temple and says, but it was late. So he just left. And then you have this weird fig tree story where he curses this fig tree that doesn't have any fruit. And then he, uh, then he goes into the temple the next day. And he just cleans house. Like, so before, before this, right, Jesus is going around Galilee. He's doing good. He's a great moral teacher, right? Uh, he's doing all this good stuff. And then he comes in the temple, and you see red Jesus. Like, we're starting to see a Jesus we haven't before. He's, like, enraged. He's really ticked off. And the reason why he's so ticked off is because he comes into the temple in the part that's actually called the courtyard of the Gentiles. And he quotes the scriptures. He quotes Isaiah, and he says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And in Isaiah, it says, for the nations, for the Gentiles. This is a place, the only place that people outside of Israel can actually come and worship God. So people who say, I know I have the need of God. I have something missing in me. I need to connect with God. This is the place where they can come and do that. And instead of them being able to do that, it's been transformed into a marketplace where they can profit from vulnerable people. That makes Jesus mad. Makes him very mad. And what makes him especially mad is the hypocrisy of it. They're doing all this in his name. In Greek, the word hypocrisy really means one who wears a mask. You wear a mask to cover who you really are. And you project someone whom you, whom you are not to the world. So the mask they're wearing is the one with his name on it. He gets mad when people are posing as him. They're maligning the name of God. God's heart for the nations is not to take advantage of them, but to offer them reconciliation. So Jesus is ticked off about this, right? So he, he makes a whip, and he just drives everyone out. The animals, the people, everything. Get out of here, you know. Uh, I'm not going to try and reenact it for you. I probably would get it wrong anyway, but it might be hilarious. But this isn't a comedy show. Thank goodness. So he drives everyone out. And then after that, you have the fig tree thing again where they see that it's, that it's dead. And, and the explanation that this is a symbol of Israel, the leadership of Israel, and their failure to produce fruit the fruit that God wants them to produce. And that brings us to where we are right now, at the end of chapter 11. So if you have a Bible and you haven't turned there yet, uh, it's in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Now, there are essentially two movements to this passage. It's pretty long. There's two, two essential things. I'm calling them the trap, because they set a trap for Jesus, and the slap. I thought of two, two things that rhyme. You know, usually you try and come up with three, and I just couldn't come up with another thing that, that rhymed with trap and slap, so we'll just, we'll just see what all this means to us after we do those two, okay? So first of all, the trap. What, so what, what do they do? Verse 27. 
They came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his entourage. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. I'm going to stop right there. Okay. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These three groups are the official ordained leadership of Israel. They make up what, uh, what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Which in, in Greek, it literally means the people who sit together. These are the people who have the authority in Israel. So they all come together and confront Jesus because, you know, what he's really done in the temple is he's thrown the gauntlet down. He's just given them a slap in the face and been like, y'all aren't legit, right? So they got to do something. What are they going to do? So they could come to Jesus and they could get defensive. Jesus, you don't really understand. Here's what's really going on. But the truth is, when, when you start to defend, you actually lend an air of credence to the other person who is, who's attacking you. You're saying, like, it's legitimate for you to attack me. They don't, want to even, they don't want to even give him any amount of legitimacy, so they go for this authority question, right? Verse 28, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, likely what he means is this whole temple cleansing thing, this temple cleansing thing. So they come to him, and they go at this authority. Why? Well, because if they can delegitimize Jesus and his authority, they can just say, look, God has ordained our, us as, as authorities over you. So uh, you need to come under us, right? You need to submit to our authority. So what they do is they're essentially saying, like, Jesus, you don't have, you don't have authority. We do. What they had forgotten is that although the Sanhedrin was made up of chief priests, which were the Levites who had been ordained by God, the tribe of Levi, God had said, y'all are going to be a priesthood to me. The, um, the scribes, the lawyers, they were known as the Pharisees. These are the people who knew Torah well. They were the interpreters of the law. And then the elders were the people who primarily sat and judged. They adjudicated in court. Right? And th- this comes from in, uh, in Exodus, when Moses has everybody coming to him, and he's adjudicating every little squabble in over a million people, and his father-in-law says, don't do that. You need to get other people who are going to help you with this. So they had 70, so there's a rule of 70, of these elders. So that's all, all the people. They're like, okay, Jesus, are you a scribe? Are you a priest? Are you among one of the, one of the elders? No. Well, I guess you don't really have authority. That's, that's what they're getting at. And it's interesting what Jesus does. He actually doesn't answer their question. He makes no claims. He just turns the trap over on them. He says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer one of mine. Where does Johnny B's authority come from? John the Baptist, right? <laughs> so, so Johnny B is a prophet. And that's actually back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, there's another line of authority given to Israel called the prophets. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll read just a few verses in in verse 18. God says this through Moses. He says, I will raise up for them, for the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
See what he's saying? He's saying that there's, th- there will be a prophet who won't have to submit to some sort of ordained collective authority. His authority is going to come directly from God. And whoever doesn't listen to him, God himself will require it of that person. You did not listen to my voice. It's bypassing the system entirely. Now, if you think about it, this is a, a very dangerous person, right? There's no checks and balances on him. There's, there's, there's no body to, like, consult with. Well, is this, really, is this really the word of God? I don't know. Here, let's talk about it. You know, that's not what's going on. So, but God knows that this is a dangerous person. So he puts in here, in verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there's, there's this test that he gives them in verse 21. If you say in your heart, well, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do you know if he's a false prophet or not? How do you know if, if they're false or true? Here's what he says in verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has, has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the, the test is what they say. If it comes true, you know it's from the Lord. If it, if it doesn't come true, then you know that they're a false prophet, which is actually a capital crime. So lest anybody want to just jump up and be like, oh, I have a word from the Lord, you know, you... you you want to be careful about that. You better know for sure that's a word from the Lord. So Jesus puts John the Baptist in here. And he goes to them and he says, okay, okay. What did you think about John? False prophet or true? Now what's interesting about that is this, this, they're, they're, the beads of sweat are starting, starting to come down their head. Because they all believed, it says here, uh, or, or, uh, verse 31, and they discuss it with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? So what, what they're doing is they're going, okay, well, we really, we didn't believe John was really a prophet. We don't really believe that. Uh, and if we say that we did, then he'll, he'll just say like, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you join up with him? If this really is the word of God, like, and he's saying something from God, shouldn't you be aligning yourself with it? So we can't do that like we've already committed. Then in verse uh, 32, but shall we say from man? So should they say the opposite, that he was a false prophet, which is what they really believed. See what Jesus is doing? He's, he's giving them a chance to come clean. He's giving them a chance to say, you know, in truth, we don't believe John was a real prophet. Of course, they don't say this, but then Jesus could say, well, then why didn't you tell everybody, don't go see this guy, John, John he's a false prophet. Why didn't you execute him? You know, uh, but they say, it says here, Verse 32, 32, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for the people held that John really was a prophet. See what Jesus is doing here? What he's really doing is he's exposing them. He's saying, you're coming to me with this authority question. You actually are not interested in God's authority at all. You're concerned about what other people think of you and whether or not you're going to keep your power and privilege and position. And so you're trying to play it both ways. That's just not going to work. So, they, so what do they do? Well, they take the coward's way out. So they answered in verse 33, We do not know. Did they really think that? Of course they didn't think that. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What he's essentially saying is, 
You know, and I know. But I'm not going to say anything to you right now about that. Instead, I'm going to tell you a story. So he does this in, verse, in chapter 12. He, he tells him a story. Here's what's funny. So he, he tells a story, essentially, that paints them as red-handed rebels against God, right? It's funny that he does, he does this in a, in a very, like, cloaked way. It's not, as, it's not super direct. We'll get into that later. But let's read it. Verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from, the, uh, to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, the, okay, there's a guy who owned land. And he wanted to make that land profitable for himself. So he put up the money to do all the construction that was necessary to make the land profitable. If you want to take a modern-day metaphor, you might say, oh, somebody inherited a plot of land in downtown, and they thought, hey, you know what? I can make this land make money for me. I'm paying taxes on it anyway. So let's turn it into a parking garage. That's something that's frustrating to me, and I won't get any more into it. <laughs> but it happens. It happens, right? We're going to turn this land into, into a profit. So he hires a construction company, builds a parking garage, and hires out people to manage it. Hires out people to manage it. And of course, he's, la- he's absentee. He lives in New York, or Southern California, or Los Angeles, or something like that, right? He lives somewhere else. And the people there aren't really letting any of the money come through them back to the owner. That's what's happening. That's what, that's what, what Jesus is talking about here. The wine press, the season comes. Hey, where's the fruit? Where, where are the profits? Sends the messenger. And it says, him they beat, in verse 3. And they took him, this is the messenger, and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and they sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is, is telling a story that's, uh, that's a parable about the history of God's people, Israel, and God over the centuries. He's still, he's still going on this, this, authority, this authority track with the, the prophets and the sort of ordained authorities. The ordained authorities are the tenants, and the messengers are the prophets, right? So what he's talking about is for literally over a thousand years, for over a thousand years, God's people like immediately after he rescues them out of Egypt and he takes them to the mountain and he makes a covenant with them and says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Follow my voice. Listen to me. Do as I say. Immediately they rebel. Like Moses is still on the mountain and they're rebelling, making a a golden calf, which is like the second commandment God said not to do. So immediately they do that. And from then on, over and over and over again, those who end up in leadership use that position for their own benefit to the detriment of those beneath them. They abuse their authority over and over again, and God could squash them, but he doesn't. Instead, he sends messengers to them, saying, turn, turn, turn. I mean, read, read the Old Testament prophets. You're going to hear over and over and over again a, a condemnation of the leadership who are oppressing God's people. So he's just telling the story, and he's saying, you know who you fit in line with. You fit in line with the wicked tenants who are beating the prophets, because that's what happened. For the most part, the prophets were rejected by Israel. In fact, the reason why we have a lot of their writings today 
is because much, much later, people were like, they were right. Those prophets were right. They said this would happen and it happened. They said this would happen and it happened. We better hang on to what they wrote because it sounds like God actually spoke through them. They were a true prophet, right? So Jesus is putting them in that category of the people who are constantly beating up God's messengers. Rebels, red-handed rebels against God. Of course, God is the landowner. I can't remember if I said that, but probably should at this point. So he says over and over and over again, they they beat them. Then verse 6. He had still another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus actually goes so far. So he introduces a new character in here, a character who hasn't come in yet, right? There's the messengers, and then there's a son, a beloved son, who comes. Who do you think that is in the story? Obviously, it's Jesus, right? You, and I'm not saying like in the little kid's way, like what's, what's fuzzy and, and eats nuts? Jesus, you know, like this, Jesus is the real answer here. Jesus is the real answer here. Uh, so he is, he's the beloved son whom they will kill and cast out. See what he's doing? He's, saying again, he's, he's continuing that same message that he is going to die. He's going to be rejected, and he is going to die. Once again, how do you know the prophets were, it was from God? They say it comes true. And we know, you know, if, if you know the story, it does come true. Jesus is that prophet, like Moses, that Moses predicted would come thousands of years before Jesus showed up. Jesus is that one. So the son comes, is rejected, and then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. I think this is hilarious. He, he quotes Psalm 118, which a different section of that is what other people were quoting when he came in on the donkey. When he came in on the donkey, they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a triumphal song. Jesus quotes a different part of that. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, uh, one thing to, to note about this is that we, we really don't build things out of stone. Like, we live, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, right? I mean, come on. We live in an awesome place. And one of the reasons why it's so beautiful here is because it's wooded. We have so many trees, so many beautiful trees, and that allows us to make beautiful things like the chairs that you're sitting on or this, the architecture of this building. I mean, it's beautiful because we have so much wood. Seriously, if you're watching online, you should come just for the building, uh, but also for the community, too. Not so in Palestine. You'll be lucky to find the, the, the shade of a, of a gnarled-up olive tree. There, there are no tall, like, 200-foot redwoods or dug firs that are 80, 100 feet tall. Nothing like that. Almost everything that was made was made out of stone in terms of dwelling places. Stone was a lot easier to come by than wood. And so this is a metaphor everybody would have understood. What happens is... a, a, a 
rocks will be quarried, stone will be quarried, limestone, whatever it is, and it will be brought to the builder, to the architect, and examined. Can we use this? What can we use this, this for? And what they'll do is if they say, oh, this, this can be used for this, but not that, we'll put it here. This can be used for anything, we'll put it here. This, this can't be used for anything at all. Just throw it out as a worthless stone. That's what he says is happening. But it's happened over and over again. See, the problem is the builders, the leaders, the people with authority, they have an agenda. They have a building that they are trying to build. And when Jesus comes along, and God's messenger comes along, they say, we can't do anything with this. And so they reject him. And the irony is that God actually has an agenda. He has something that he wants to build. And what he wants to build not only can have Jesus in it, but requires Jesus to be the cornerstone. And most of us, I know, probably aren't architects. I had to look this up, so it's not that I'm smart or something like that. But a cornerstone is the first stone that is laid, and it is the most significant stone. And the reason why is because that is the stone that holds things together. It makes sure the walls are at the right angle, and it sets the shape of all the other stones have to be built from that one spot. It's the most important stone there. The integrity of the building depends on the integrity of that stone. It has to be special. And what he's saying is this is an ongoing tradition in Scripture that God confounds the wisdom of the wise. That the very thing that we reject, that they rejected, is the very thing that God is going to use to build what he wants to make. Just a slight application before we get to some serious application. If you feel like a failure, if you feel rejected, you might very well be something that is very fitting for God's house. So you're in good company. God will use failures. In fact, he'll use anything. So, what do we do? What do we do? Mark is portraying Jesus as the son of the owner the one who has the same authority as the owner. By the way, I mean, when, when I read this story, and when you read this story, you probably thought, well, that's weird that they thought that somehow killing the owner's son would give them the inheritance. Isn't that weird? Well, when I read smart people who've dug up things from back, you know, way back when, they found out that this is actually um, not that far from home for their world. Jesus tells stories, but those stories are highly significant to the people who are there. So they, they have accounts of the same thing happening. Absentee land ownership, people who are hired out to occupy the land and to care for it and to make it profitable, and them sort of like just being disgruntled at the absentee ownership and trying to sort of foment a rebellion and take over. That was fairly common. But what about this whole, like, if we kill the son, then, then, then it's going to be ours? What's the deal with that? Well, the way that it worked was uh, the son would not show up to the vineyard unless the owner had died and he was coming into his inheritance. That's, that's what was going on. 
If the owner died, the son was coming in his, his inheritance, he'd come in, he'd show up, say, hi, I'm the new owner. Uh, we're not going to do wine anymore. We're going to do olives. So you're all fired or whatever, you know. Maybe we're just going to keep doing the same thing. With these guys, they would be fired, right? But, um, but the, the son, the inheritor would show up just to be like, I'm the boss, to show up and say, I'm the boss, and then they'd likely be out again. They wouldn't show up unless, unless it was, they were coming into their own inheritance. So that means if, if the owner dies and the inheritor dies, there's, there could be a legitimate claim on the estate. And who would have a legitimate claim other than the people that have been living there, occupying it for a long time? Their legal system isn't like ours where it's like immediately going to follow the next of kin necessarily. So it isn't that crazy, just in case you were wondering. It isn't that crazy to think that he would die. Or, or that in killing him, they, would, they could inherit the, the estate. So what's, what's, what's the point in all this? You know, where, where are we going? How can this translate into our world today? I mean, anybody a member of the Sanhedrin? I, I didn't think so. <laughs> you know, why, why do we have this Jesus who's raging? Why do we suddenly get the snarky Jesus? Who's turning the trap over on them and giving them a sort of backhanded compliment with this story? Well, one reason is because Jesus is a prophet. He's the prophet. The prophet of God himself. And so he must confront sin. This is what prophets did over and over again. They confronted sin. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Uh, and, you know, he hates hypocrisy generally, which we all carry, right? Even if you're not a believer in anything, you probably have some moral sense in which you like project upon yourself some sort of morality, and you probably can't even live up to that. I don't know anybody who can actually live up to any of that. But this is a deeper kind of hypocrisy, right? This is like doing something in God's name that's oppressing other people. He really hates that, too. So let's not, uh, let's not work our way around that. This is, this is real. And these religious leaders, they can be, you know, religious leaders can be an easy target. So, I mean, you can, you can shoot at me or Cameron or whatever, too. That's fine. Uh, we need it. We're not perfect. We can't, we can't do everything right. We're going to fail, as will you guys, of course. But if we are failing, we don't know it. We might need people like you to come tell us, to help us out. And if you know the real Jesus... You'll know that whether you're a leader in the church or anything else, the real Jesus will confront you. He will confront you with your sin, with where you are. Because none of us are perfect. None of us have got, it, have got it totally squared away, right? You know, one of the reasons, we, one, of the, one of the ways in which he confronts us, right, is, is that even if you give your life, you give yourself to Jesus, you say, I'm, gonna, I'm in your club, I want to follow you, I want to give my life to you, we still have these pockets, of, at least pockets of our life that we hold in reserve that we're like, no, I don't want you to be Lord over this, I want to have authority over this, right? For me, the big one is time. You know, I have to get up early in the morning before the kids do or else I'll, I, I don't know how to keep my sanity. So I get up early, I'm like, Lord, this is your time. And I go to work and I come home and I tag my wife out, I got the kids again until dinner, bath time, bedtime, and then I get maybe one to two hours before bedtime again. And I'm like, I want those two hours. 
I want that one or two hours to watch Meerkat Manor or whatever, you know. This shows you where my life is right now. But I want these. Lord, I, if you were to say, like, oh, go volunteer for this, go and do that, I'm like, no, I got to take care of me. Like, these are the, this is the only hour that I get. How am I going to be okay? If I give that away, how am I going to be okay? And for you, it may be time, it may be something else, it might be your wallet. Hey, you know what, Lord? Fine, you can have your 10%, but the 90% is mine, you know? Uh, we don't actually do that. We're a lot more subtle and sophisticated than that. But in truth, how often are we like, Lord, okay, here's yours, now the rest is mine, right? You can be Lord over that, but not this. And that's going on in all of our hearts all of the time. Which is why I think here the, the correct response isn't necessarily continuing to thump the moralistic tub along with Jesus, like hypocrisy, we hate hypocrisy and rebellion. There's more than moralistic tub thumping. <laughs> Chumbawamba. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is on his way to the cross. What's really happening here, what is happening? Jesus is both confronting his sin and using that very sin, that very rejection of him to drive him further towards the cross where he can die on behalf of the very people who are driving him there. The very people who are rejecting him, he's going to go die for on their behalf. Because you know what? Whether you mean well or whether you don't, he still died for you. He came to take away the sins of the world to defeat Satan and death and sin for all of us. That's what he came to do. And so he's going to use the failure. He's going to use the rejection. He's going to use all of it. That's the whole, the stone the builder's rejection. He's going to use it for his good and for his glory to bring about benefit for people who aren't him. That's the crazy thing, right? He's not just like, how can I make the best world for myself? I'll find the most beautiful, well-behaved people, and I'll take all of them. Like, that's, that's the myth of our world is like, God is going to, like, put your good deeds on one side of the scale and the bad deeds on the other, and whoever's scale, like, sinks the lowest, he's going to take that for his team. That's actually not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. The gospel is that we all fail. We're all on, we're all on that failure side. And sometimes God takes the worst of us and the silliest of us and the raunchiest of us, and he makes, like, this... Uh, well, a family that we wouldn't choose, you might say. <laughs> a pastor I, I, I grew up under used to always say, well, if God couldn't use the rocks that he found lying around, he wouldn't have anything to use at all. And the same goes for our failures. If he couldn't use our failures, he wouldn't have much to work with at all. But that's the gospel. And I, I, I went, as I was reading this, I, I thought, this is interesting. So you know how Jesus sets the trap on them, and he doesn't actually make any claims. He just lets them kind of sweat it out, but he gives them enough space to come clean. He actually does. You know, he could have he really laid into them. He does that in, in Matthew 23, by the way. You hypocrites! You know, he just really lays into them publicly. But he doesn't do that here. You know, somebody else did that in, in uh, Acts 7. Stephen does that. Just, just lays directly into them. I, got, I, I wrote down what he says. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You know, Jesus could have laid into him that way. But that probably would have got him arrested a little too soon. 
You know, it wasn't quite the time. And I think not just expedience, it wasn't just, you know, politically expedient for Jesus not to do that. I think that he actually still maintains a level of compassion. Even as he's he's meeting resistance, he gives space, opportunity for people to change their mind. You know, they could have said, you know what? Maybe he's right about John. Maybe we're wrong about him. You and I have that space right now. Do you know that? Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to come again. And the trumpet's going to sound, and it's all going to be over at that point. But right now, we have the opportunity to say, okay, I could be wrong here. Help me. Save me, Jesus. We have that opportunity. So more than moralism, more than just cleaning house, and by the way, I'm not saying... Uh, in, in showing the graciousness of Jesus in the way that he uses our, our failures, I'm not condoning failure as like a desirable thing, right? I'm not saying that good isn't really good and we shouldn't strive or anything like that. What I am saying, though, is that what motivates, what moves us, what empowers us to actually live the life we know that we should live, to live the life like Jesus, is not the anxiety and fear fear and frustration over our failures and our inadequacies and the guilt that we're not doing enough, but the grace that he continues to offer in spite of our failures. That's what keeps us going. That's what makes you move. You know, you could be listening to this. I don't know. It's, it's possible that somebody listening to me, you've had the worst week of your entire life. The last thing you want to hear is like, you're a moral failure and you suck and get it together. Uh, well, yeah, maybe that's true. But you know what? Jesus loves failures. He died for failures. He died for all of us. And none of us are going to actually be able to do it. We all stand equally in need of God's grace. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wrap it up right there. Come to him. Come to him with your success if you had a good week. Come to him with your failures if you've had a bad one. He can use all of it. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about how well we do or how poorly we do. It's about Jesus. And when it's about him, when we can stop focusing on ourselves and focus on him, that's when we'll really start to succeed. We'll really start to live the way that we want.